Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on uh, Martin Chemnitz in Caridian, Ministry, Word, and Sacraments. Um, we are still going through the first section, which is on the Office of the Holy Ministry, and how that works uh, biblically, how that works through church history, with a special eye toward how it works through the Reformation, and then also in our own day. So we're going to be picking up on page 32 at question 20. But before we get there, let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we have been looking at uh, a comparison between the immediate and mediate call. Immediate is when God directly goes to someone and calls them into a specific office. You can think of Moses in the Old Testament at the burning bush. You can think of Paul on the road to Damascus. The Lord directly or immediately calls a man into a particular office or task. The immediate call then is done through the church. And we can understand that as church very broadly. There's two components to that. The approval of the ministerium, which we sometimes call ordination, and the approval of the local congregation, which we would call a call, a divine call. So God working through those. And we've been looking at these two calls. And again, Chemnitz poses the question, is one of these superior to the other? To not be technical about it all, is one more from God and the other less from God? And the answer is no. They are both divine calls from God. They just come in two different ways. On page 32 at question 20, we read, May he then who has been properly chosen for the ministry by a immediate call refer and apply also to himself, each according to his own measure, equally as well as also the prophets and apostles, the promises of grace, help, power, and divine efficacy in the ministry. And again, this is where we received our affirmative answer, and there are a number of scriptures cited there from First and Second Timothy uh, as well as from, uh, looks like, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians included. Okay? So at question 21, what then are the regular means that God wants to use for a immediate call? For a immediate call, God ordinarily does not use the ministry of angels, but the ministry of his church, which is a royal priesthood. For to it, as to his spouse, has Christ entrusted the keys of the kingdom. Uh, Matthew eighteen eighteen. Likewise, he entrusted the word and the sacraments. A couple of references to Romans. 
and briefly, all things are of the church, both the ministry and the ministers. It should be self-evident there is a distinction between the royal priesthood and the pastoral office. All things are given to the royal priesthood. Indeed, all pastors themselves are royal priests. And so I think, I mean, a beautiful, concise statement of biblical theology in regard to the office and its relationship to the church or the royal priesthood should be uh, relatively easy to understand. All right. Question 22. Does the Roman pontiff do right? Of course, the Roman pontiff referring to the pope. Does he do right in that he excludes pious rulers and the rest of the lay church from the election and call of bishops or ministers of the church? He arrogating that to himself. Here's the answer Chemnitz provides. It is clearly and surely evident from both the commands and the examples of Scripture that when the ministry is to be entrusted to someone through a mediate call, those who are already in the ministry and profess sound doctrine are to be used. And then a variety of citations there from uh, Timothy and Titus and Acts. But since ministers are not the whole church, but only part of it, and they are not lords of the church, but ministers, that's servants is the language there, and overseers, so both servants and overseers, that, um, that would be the language of bishops. Therefore, they neither can nor should seize to themselves alone the immediate call with the other members of the church excluded, for not even the apostles did this, but drew the rest of the church in with themselves. Okay, place a finger down, and then you've got citations from Acts 1, 6, and 14. Place a finger there. Um, we'll return to this momentarily. What the papacy does is uh, the pontiff, the pope, says the right to call and appoint ministers is mine and mine alone. That's how he views himself as uh, the overseer of all other pastors. Now, he delegates this through the means of his magisterium, but the power resides within him and him alone, and he does this completely apart from any lay input or any input from the church. So that's the context to which Kenwitz is speaking, saying, uh, no, that's not cor correct, that it, this would belong to any one pastor, which that's all the Pope is, is one pastor. Okay? And it needs to be all the pastors, all the ministerium approving of this. Again, that's the one side of the coin that we've referred to as ordination, the laying on of hands biblically. Uh, the other side being the call um, that the members of the church should not be excluded. And that here in this last sentence we covered is exactly what Chemnitz writes, um, that they, can, uh, they neither can nor should cease to themselves alone the immediate call with the other members of the church excluded. So it's holistically given to the church 
and it's and then through these two sides of the coin, the ministerium and the church, the call is again holistically done. It's not um, grabbed a hold of by one particular pastor, as has been the case in the papacy. Now you can probably see a strange correlation to a, what a, many non-denomination non-denominational churches of our age do, which is the so-called senior pastor very frequently chooses for himself who the other pastors in, in his church are going to be, and his church very frequently, again, having many sites or satellites. So how is he acting in taking that away from the ministerium of a larger church body or taking that away from the congregation, including maybe the other satellite congregations, and simply arrogating that all to himself? He's acting like a mini-pope. So yet another strange instance in which Protestantism, as the pendulum has, has kind of swung, the pendulum has done a full circle, and we've arrived back in Rome again, we've just got electric guitars and Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> and that is one of, of course, the ironies of American evangelicalism and American Roman Catholicism is externally they look like two very different I always use the analogy of, of a car. One's got a really fancy modern paint job. The other's got a more classical paint job. One's more classically designed. The other uh, looks like it's cutting edge. You know, maybe these days some sort of newfangled Tesla or whatever. These cars look very, very different. Roman Catholicism and contemporary American evangelicalism look very different. But as soon as you get right underneath the hood you realize it's the same exact engine. And it's the same exact design of the internals that runs the thing. So you find all kinds of connections between Roman Catholic theology and American Protestant theology. They just look different externally. But internally, even on the questions of justification, the questions of sanctification or piety, the questions of how the church runs or organizes itself, you're going to find, shockingly, a lot more similarity than you would if you contrasted Lutheran or biblical theology over and against Rome or Lutheran and biblical theology over and against American evangelicalism. There's going to be a much starker difference there than there is between Rome and uh, American evangelicalism. Okay, so just to pick up where we left off, finish that section, then we'll pause and see if you have any comments or anything to add. Kenneth continues, And with the name elders are meant not only ministers of the word, but included in the presbytery are those who were appointed by the whole church to administer the work of the church as Tertullian and Ambrose testify. Okay, Tertullian, um, his dates are usually recorded as 155 to 220 AD, so very early. Ambrose, 4th century guy, 339 to 397. Okay, the point that Chemnitz is referring to is it is a, an aberration that the papacy 
has gathered all of this power and centralized all of this power in and of itself. Biblically, God gives the office of the pastoral ministry to his church. Again, that the church might hear the saving gospel and believe. It's that simple. Now, whatever other offices there are that are lay offices, offices held by laymen within the church, the congregation or the church can create or dispose of them as she sees fit. So our example concretely is we've got a council. What if we just decided we don't want to have a vice president anymore? We could do that. What if we decided we want two vice presidents? We could do that. You see, it's all of human origin and it's all subject to human control. Um, then the second component of that is that within the pastoral ministry, okay, God has given us one office, the office of pastor. Within that pastoral ministry, we can, by human design, set up a hierarchy or a distribution of tasks within that office as well. So concretely, you could have a senior pastor and an associate pastor, uh, or sort of looking at our broader structure, you could have a uh, circuit with a circuit visitor who's responsible for all the churches in the circuit, or a district with a district president, the president responsible, and so on, you see. But could we change that? Absolutely, we could change that. We could have two circuit visitors or three district presidents. We could make it so that this man has authority to oversee these pastors and this other man has authority to oversee these other pastors. Okay, we can design that however we want. All of that is, and, and here again, um, if, you're, if you want to get into the, the technical terms of this debate, you can remember those Latin phrases, uh, de iuri divino, by divine right or origin, and then de iuri humano, uh, by human right or origin. And so what we're talking about here is um, the divine right is that there is this office, and Christ will call men immediately into that office. Everything else that we've just discussed is de iuri humano, of human origin. And that's fine. God gives his church great freedom to do what she needs to do in order to conduct her life and ministry in a given context, a given time and place. Make sense? Okay, so we have a great deal of freedom. This is, by the way, where Melanchthon says, um, in principle, we don't have a problem with the Pope. Because the church in her freedom, think of a, uh, think a, think a best case world that's never existed. Uh, the church in her freedom could choose to elect one pastor to be the pastor over all the other pastors. Not a problem. What would be wrong with that? I mean, the same way we elect district presidents and a synodical president, why couldn't we say over, that one man would be responsible over all of Christendom? So, Melanchthon's point isn't that he thinks that this is a particularly good idea, but his point is that in principle we've got no issue with it. We re- as long as it's acknowledged that this is de jure humano, of human doing, of human origin. Do you think the Pope's going to assent to that? No, because he views his position as coming de jure divino. He's appointed by God to be the vicar of Christ and to have authority over. And it's not because the church agreed upon this. It's because God has given it unto him. That's his claim. Now, it's a false claim, but that's his claim. 
So you can see that in the case of the papacy, the way the, in which these different biblical dynamics are, are explored, the chief problem with the papacy is, is that even beyond the question of justification or whatever other errors it promotes, is the fact that if you don't show fealty to the papacy, you're out. And in fact, ironically, that's the one thing that unites Roman Catholicism, which if you know anything about Roman Catholicism, it is not monolithic, even though it often presents itself and purports to be the church from St. Peter till now. The modern Roman Catholic Church teaches all kinds of things that not only St. Peter had no clue of, but people for, the, for 1,800 years of church history had no clue about it. And now this church preaches it and acts as though it has always been preached and taught for 2,000 years. It's not the case. Rome isn't monolithic uh, over the course of time, nor even at our present time is Rome monolithic. But rather, you find all sorts of denominations within Roman Catholicism itself, differing, warring factions within Rome that are in fact not united doctrinally one unto another. What is the one thing that unites them? Fealty to the Pope. So fealty to the Pope is in fact the glue that binds and the one arch principle of Roman Catholicism, everything else being up for debate. And of course, we can point to many other aberrations having to do at the time of Reform- the Reformation with, well, the, uh, the Augustana lists them out, but of course, chief of them, justification. And then in our own time, probably most obvious and egregious, all of the Marian stuff that has really come to the fore where uh, Rome is starting to call her the um, mediatrix, or as the scriptures say, there's one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Um, now Rome is becoming so bold as to claim that Mary is the mediatrix, and in some cases even called the co-redemptrix, the co-redeemer of the human race. So, uh, yeah, that's. I mean, these things are problems. They're huge doctrinal problems, but the foundation of these doctrinal problems is a man who has arrogated himself the throne of, to, to himself the throne of God. All right, let's pause there. Let's see if you have any reflections on this uh, paragraph or any of our meditation thus far. Well, I'm glad to hear we're free in, in uh, this pastor business. Um, but how free are we? Because... You know, especially in, at least in, in Rome, they have seminaries and they, you know, have to graduate like we do and things like that. And, and there's a certain standard. But you go into uh, evangelicalism today, and especially in a denomination like the Baptists, you really don't have to have, and, and Calvary Chapel, you really don't have to have any education. You've, if you have a call one morning... Uh, and, and decide that you're a pastor, all you need is a church, and you're good to go. Uh, and that, that's pretty scary to me. And so what are we as uh, mainline Christians, how do we interpret a guy that calls himself, or a gal, that refers to him or herself as pastor, blah, 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 and, and um, <laughs> do we pay 
total respect and everything as we would anybody. I don't know. It's just, it's confusing. Yeah, it is. It's, it is definitely uh, confusing. I don't know if you were to pose to me, you know, would you rather have somebody uneducated holding the pastoral office or somebody educated with all the Pope's lies? I, I don't know which I'd choose. What, you know, what's, what's worse, no education or a bad education? <laughs> I don't know. Those aren't good choices. No. So um, I, think, I think that there's, uh, there's this principle that applies. And again, this, this comes from Christ when he's referring to those who sit in Moses' seat. Do you remember that? There's a sense in which we need to honor the office, okay, even if we're not certain of the validity of the office. So that's the first principle. But the second principle is a little bit of skepticism toward it. Okay? So this man may, may or may not validly hold the office. He may or may not be a false teacher. That remains to be seen. Okay? Uh, obviously, there, there's a sort of confessional association that we can make. In the case of a female claiming to be a pastor, this is self-evidently not the case. There's just no such thing as a female pastor. And playing that game is fundamentally no different than um, calling a, a man who wants you to refer to him as a her. You're just playing word games. And so there's a man, and, and you're supposed to call her a her. Or there's a woman, and you're supposed to call her a pastor. Those are the same. It's not to be done. It's impossible. It's an ontological impossibility that you would have a pastor uh, be a female. So, uh, so I think we can draw a little bit of a stronger line there. Um, whereas um, if someone has the office, and I think within, you know, within evangelicalism, if we're to be charitable, there is in some cases, a sort of de facto call that takes place simply by people gathering around a man and saying, well, you're our pastor, or recognizing him as such. And uh, though that may not have any like obvious, official, ostensible qualities to it, the reality is that he's been accepted and called as their pastor, sort of tacitly, de facto, implicitly, whatever you want to say. And then the abuse is more than when he says, okay, since I'm the pastor, I will appoint my chosen pastors to be my... Yeah. And by the way, I, I mean, the, I'm kind of pointing fingers. The LCMS isn't immune from this. So the LCMS way of doing this is you're, if you're a pastor of a big wannabe evangelical church... And you're afraid that if you call somebody, he might actually be like liturgical and confessional. You don't want to risk that. If he's been educated at one of our seminaries, he, he might have too broad of an education. And he might call into question some of the cult-like things you're doing. And you certainly don't want that. So what do you do? You choose from within your fold a man or two and you send them to the bare minimal kind of program, like the one that's running at CUI right now, um, where you get a bare minimum education, you do a three-year part-time vicarage under who? 
the pastor who wants you to be made in his image. And so everything you're learning at, let's say, CUI in this example, you're running by the pastor and the pastor going, yeah, well, it's not exactly like that. Or, yeah, well, go ahead and nod along. And, uh, but this is, how it's, this is how the sausage is really made. And then, lo and behold, after that program, you've got somebody who now is, quote-unquote, credentialed and recognized to one degree or another within the LCMS. But what has that pastor really done? Just created a little mini-me of his own doing. And now he's, uh, so he's just multiplying himself as opposed to viewing it as a holy office um, that the Holy Spirit is calling and appointing men into, he has simply grabbed hold of that for himself and is conducting that within the strictures of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, as it presently is. Okay, so I don't mean to just, you know, point fingers. We've got our own species of this within our church body. Uh, behind you is a hand. What about baptisms that have been performed by female pastors? Is it the power that's, of God's word supersedes our human sinfulness? That's a great question. And it's one that um, our, our systematicians do in fact wrestle with, even at the seminary level. And I would venture to say there's some disagreement on this basis. You can find church fathers, particularly those that existed in the earlier periods of the church, and maybe one of the most outspoken, I think, in this regard would be Cyprian. It's so impossible that there be a woman pastor that whatever she does is simply not valid in his view. Simply cannot be the word of God in his view. So there are some that... um, find themselves in agreement with Cyprian on that point, uh, I, th- I think there's some problems with that. Okay? And as you pointed out, wouldn't a baptism be a valid baptism even done by a lay person on account of the word? That's a valid consideration, and that might represent fairly the other side of the argument. So in terms of pastoral practice, I would want to examine that um, with, with whoever uh, was baptized by you know, a female who everybody said was a pastor when in fact she wasn't. Now, what's frequently happening, at least under the umbrella of quote-unquote Lutheranism, is those females who are baptizing are also not using a biblical baptismal formula. They're often not baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But because the project is not only to degender humanity, but also to degender God, they're baptizing in the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. You'll notice that in those words, there's not a gender. So Father, obviously gendered. Son gendered, and the Holy Spirit biblically is always and everywhere pronounced as a he in the scriptures. And then anytime God is spoken of, I'm here referring to aside from a specific person, God is also gendered as a he. So the problem arises then that if you're no longer recognizing God as he, 
no longer recognizing the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit as He, in what sense do you have the same God as the scriptures and historic Christianity, who for all times and places have worshipped a He? And now you say, our God is not a He. Seems pretty foundational. So to baptize in the name of a God who is not a He, a degendered God, creator, redeemer, and sanctifier, is not a valid baptism and shouldn't be recognized as such. So that, that poses a real issue when we have a member of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America come over, and, and I love those people, and I, I pity those people, because talk about a church that slid out from under their feet. I mean, most of them didn't ask for any of this. They were born and raised Lutheran, and they'd like to continue to be Lutheran, and then the church has embraced all this nonsense. What do we do? So it's not from a place of, uh, you know, it's not from a lack of charity that I say these things, but rather quite the opposite, genuine charity, genuine pastoral concern, that members who come to us from the ELCA, you really have to ask those questions of, do you know if you were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? What kind of congregation did you belong to? Did you have a female pastor or not? There are some ELCA churches that, even though the larger ELCA permits women pastors, the individual congregations don't, or even if they pay lip service to it, which is a problem, they still never have and never would. Those are, those are factors to be taken into account. But it creates a real messy uh, place um, theologically whenever we're departing from these things that God has given. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, and... Maybe the best I can do right now. Okay, there's another hand, and then we'll jump back into the text. <clears throat> In my mind, you've presented so many cans of worms. I don't know where to <laughs> But one comment I would say is, is this so um, easy to do with English language because we don't have gender-specific nouns? like French and German and, all, and Spanish and all this. Maybe it's easier to do in English, which is the universal language now. You know? But, I mean, um, uh, one of the things of the five cans of worms that I'm dealing with in my mind right now is the current pope is really divisive. I know from friends who are Roman Catholic, they're very disturbed with this present pope. And I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, a cardinal or something like that is really challenging the Pope's authority and some of the things that he has allowed to happen. This is a major problem, I think. They, some I know one friend who won't go to the Catholic Church who is Catholic because she's so upset by it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely fascinating way to spend some hours is to to just listen to the debates between those who are, if not um, pro this particular pope, still hold the consensus belief that this pope is a legitimate pope, over and against those within Rome who claim that this pope is not a legitimate pope, and probably, here you get some disagreement, but probably several popes before him were not legitimate popes. that's a good way to spend a Saturday morning when you're cleaning the house with your earbud in. <laughs> Talk about fascinating arguments. Uh, so yeah, there. Th- thank you for that. That's yet one more example 
of great divisiveness within Rome that so frequently presents itself to us as Lutherans or even more broadly to Protestants as monolithic and a a source of true and genuine and objective authority. And so that is really the appeal that most people have, like why would I go to Rome? Largely two appeals. Uh, the, The mirage of monolithic unity and authority, which doesn't in fact exist, and the other is aesthetic, because it looks like the church, smells like the church, feels like the church. And it's actually got some validity to it. I mean, let's just say hypothetically, you were to create a church that denounces the gospel, that denounces the true gospel, presents another way of salvation, and you were to create all manner of aberration within that church so that it was a truly anti-Christian church, and you wanted Christians to become part of that church and to believe it was the true church, what would you do? You would make it look like the church. You would make it look like the ideal church and feel like the ideal church so that people are duped. You know, when you're a fisherman, you don't just cast a bare hook. Now, sometimes when you're fishing for really stupid fish, you can just catch a, cast a bare hook in there and catch something. Uh, but the whole point is that you're trying to make your bait look attractive, look like struggling prey, okay? Look like the opposite of what it is. And often, the better you are at doing that, the more fish you're going to catch. It's no different when Satan goes fishing for men. He's going to do that with a church that looks perfectly like the church, that looks like if you look in in the Old Testament, and if you look in what's going on in heaven, and you look at what was going on at various times where the church was thriving in our history, you're going to say, that's the way I want the church to look and smell and feel today so that it will attract fish to it. And then inside, I'm going to place this hook, which is a gospel antithetical to the gospel you find in the scriptures and in the true church. You're going to create a false church that looks more like a real church than the real church does. That's really what we're up against. Okay. Now, there's some ways that we can leverage that, too. Because Satan tips his hand in many respects as to what the aesthetics of the church should be and are. Reverence and piety and liturgy and a worship that reflects heaven and the idea that aesthetics are important. I mean, that's maybe, that's maybe the way in which uh, Rome has bested all of the modern Protestant churches is because they recognize how important aesthetics are, how a place feels how it looks, what its architecture and art communicate for many, many decades in the LCMS, as well as broader Lutheranism, to say nothing, of course, of broader Protestantism. There's been a complete despising of aesthetics, a complete idea of aesthetics don't matter. Just make it functional in one way, shape, or form, whatever functional means. Thus, you have certain Protestant churches that look like concert halls and certain Lutheran churches that look like lecture halls. And these places don't look like church at all. So I think we can leverage in this spiritual warfare what Satan has done 
and the bait he's using, so to speak, in a church actually looking like a church and feeling like a church, and we can grasp hold of that, and I think we do a fine job of that, by the way, here, and I think many Lutheran churches do do a fine job of that, and I think we can only increase that and make that uh, all the more obvious to people to leverage that while having the church's true gospel, the apostolic gospel, abundantly present within. So that when people, people will be drawn to the church because it looks like church, and then what they'll find inside will in fact be a genuine church with the gospel and gifts, the keys of which Chemnitz speaks, all uh, truly and verily present within. All right, was there another uh, question or comment? Okay, off we go then into question 23. But with what right does political authority take for itself the power to call and appoint ministers of the church? This is not really our uh, problem, but in a state church or where the state and the church are much more combined and intertwined as they certainly were in the 16th century, this becomes a question that needs to be answered. Chemnitz writes, The ecclesiastical ministry belongs to the kingdom of Christ, and since Christ wants his kingdom and the kingdom of the world with its functions to be separate, you can see the two kingdoms doctrine in the background here, therefore the appointment of the ministry does not properly belong to the political rights of a magistrate like the rest of the things that are called uh, regalia or royal privileges. So just place a finger there very quickly. You remember just even in broadest terms um, this problem within the history of the church. Should the pope or the head of the church, quote unquote, um, be crowning kings? Or should the king as head of the state be crowning popes? Okay, And this goes back and forth and Really, from a Lutheran or biblical perspective, it's a big nothing burger. Okay. <laughs> All right, back to the text. But since a political magistrate, if he is a Christian and pious, is a member of the church, and thus has a mandate not only to love the teaching of the divine word and practice piety himself, but with his office also to be a nursing father of the church, reference to Isaiah 49.23, And in order that the gates of the world lift up their heads, that the king of glory might enter through them, Psalm 24, 7. This is therefore the concern also of a pious magistrate, that the ministries of the church be rightly ordered and administered. Okay, So in a godly state, you have the state not only protecting the church so that it can thrive, but actually making sure that the church conducts itself in accordance with its own principles. Boy, we're a long way away from that. Uh, but, and that should give you a different glimpse, too, of how Chemnitz and how the Lutherans thought of the two kingdoms and how they thought of the role of the left-hand kingdom not simply being a secular place. In fact, that, that's just an alien thought to them the kingdom of the left belonging to Christ and meant to be ruled by Christian rulers in accordance with his will, with natural law. Okay. Question 24. Is a Christian magistrate therefore permitted to call and appoint ministers in the church without the will and consent of the ministry and the rest of the church? Could you imagine? Newsom just says, here's your new pastor. 
Chemnitz writes, As the Roman pontiff with them who are his has committed a great sacrilege in this, that he has taken the election and call of ministers away from the church and transferred it to himself alone. Okay, again, we're talking about what the Pope has done. So a political magistrate also becomes guilty of the same offense when he takes for himself alone the power to appoint the ministries in the church with the ministry and the rest of the church excluded. For a pious magistrate is not the whole church, but only a part of it. Nor is he the Lord of the church, but nursing father. Again, reference to Isaiah 49.23. In fact, it's servant, Isaiah 60.10. Okay. So you can see um, the dichotomous role of a Christian ruler in relation to the church, both as father and as servant. Interesting, because that was uh, virtually the same language used for the pastoral office, that the pastoral office would be one of service and oversight. Okay, question 25, and here we get into a very germane and important point. Here's the question, but do Anabaptists, okay, we're talking here about 16th century Anabaptists, that that name literally means baptize again, so people who advocate that you must be baptized again, Um, do they do right who entrust the whole right of calling to the common multitude, which they take the word ekklesia, that's the Greek word for church, to mean? with the ministry and pious magistrate excluded. Okay, So the Anabaptists are entrusting the right of calling to the common multitude, but the ministry and the pious magistrate have to be excluded. Okay? We're going to do this on our own authority as people. The, the pious, let's say the Christian ruler and the pastor have no say whatsoever. The pastors have no say whatsoever. Um, This is a weird idea and an anti-authoritarian idea, to be sure. All right, what is Chemnitz's answer? By no means. For the church in each place is called and is the whole body embracing under Christ, the head, all the members of that place. Therefore, as the call belongs not only to the ministry, nor only to the magistrate, so also is it not to be made subject to the mere will and whim of the common multitude. For no part, with either one or both of the others excluded, is the church. But the call should be and remain in the power of the whole church, but with due order observed. Now, what what? Countess has actually done here is super important, especially for us as we, you know, kind of work through the problems of our 20th and 21st century view of the office of the ministry. And that is to say that the church consists of church and ministry. The church is never the church apart, properly speaking, is never the church apart from the ministry, nor does the ministry exist in and of itself apart from a church. Church and ministry are two sides of the same coin. If you take one side away, you don't have the coin. And that is extremely helpful because then if we're going to talk about church over and against ministry, what we're really talking about is laity 
or when it gets clergy, we're talking about the office of the royal priesthood with those royal priests who hold rightly the pastoral office. We can see biblical distinctions there, but it's not the way that it's been framed over the last hundred years in the Lutheran church as you have this one thing called church and this one thing called ministry and they're at odds with each other. And all manner of havoc has gotten uh, caused by this bad theology that the church is not the ministry and the ministry is not the church and these two things are at odds. So you'll often get this kind of question that to me is like simultaneously no, uh, let me just put it this way. Um, it's, it's virtually a, a well, I'm struggling. I can only think of negative things to say. <laughs> You get this kind of question that is like, what is the role and, and of, the, of the clergy over and against the role of the royal priesthood? Or, or you get some question as to how do these work together? And it's like so, so obvious and so self-evident that the question assumes a faulty theology. That's what you can detect. So at surface level, it's meaningless. It's, it's like impossible to discern what the meaning is. And that's because there are assumptions built into it. And the assumptions built into it are precisely that there's this thing called the church and this thing called the ministry, and they're at odds. There's this thing called the royal priesthood, and there's this thing called the pastoral office, and they're at odds. Who the heck would presume such a thing? Satan. Satan would presume such a thing and frame our thoughts in just this way, and frame our questions in just this way, and create problems out of thin air by pitting these two against each other. Never in the scriptures are they pitted against each other. I mean, any more than you would pit, like, your mouth against your arm. Both are members of the same body. The mouth does its work to bless and benefit the rest of the body, the arm included. And the arm does its work to bless and benefit the mouth that it might eat. So you've got you've got this uh, analogy in the Bible of the of the pastoral office and the church being one organic whole working together as a unit. And that's the real value of what Chemnitz lays out here for us is there's no such thing as the church properly speaking apart from the ministry. They're one organic whole. Can't have a living body without a heart. They're one organic whole. So the idea of somehow pitting these against each other is asinine, to say the least, and satanic, to probably speak the most accurately. Okay, so that's the, that's the great takeaway, I think. And by the way, I mean, mercifully, this theology is all dissolving and going away because the pastoral office and the royal priesthood are one body together um, in mutual service of one another. And existing for the point of promulgating the word and sacraments of Jesus Christ for the salvation of the world. That's not rocket science, but it was made rocket science for the past hundred or so years. Okay, yes please. This is appropriate at Thanksgiving time especially, but when I was a kid growing up, one of our neighbors had raised ch- chickens, and they were getting them ready to eat, but they had to chop their heads off. And one of the chickens had his head chopped off, but his body kept running around. Mm. 
is gross, but that can happen. And mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. to me, a visualization of this thing you're talking about. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, when you have the Anabaptists electing a pastor without using their head, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, you've got a body running around. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, a graphic <laughs> image, if nothing else. But. Okay, so on to the next question, 26. Ought then the whole multitude, especially where it is very large, indiscriminately and without order handle the matter of election and call? Yeah, let's do a, let's do a divine call by riotous mob. Does that sound like a good idea? God is not a God of confusion, Chemnitz writes. He rather wants all things to be done and administered decently and in order in the church. 1 Corinthians 14.40 Therefore, to avoid confusion at the time of the apostles and also after their time in the ancient and pure church, the matter of the election and call of ministers of the word was always handled according to a certain order by the chief members of the church in the name and with the consent of the whole church. Could the church decide for itself, hey, we're going to um, appoint these three or four pastors to call a pastor on our behalf, or we're going to appoint this committee to call a pastor on our behalf, and we're going to entrust ourselves to their determination? Of course, because the church can do whatever she wants. As long as it's not contrary to God's word, God's left us free to use our wisdom, and if that's what's wise and prudent, by all means. Okay? So that would be a, an example of the de jure humano, of human origin. All right? <clears throat> so here, um, continuing with Chemnitz, thus the apostles first set forth a directive as to what kind of persons are to be chosen for the ministries of the church, uh, reference to Acts 1.15 and following, and Acts 6.2 and following, Then the church, according to that rule of the directive, chose and set forth some. But since the call belongs not only to the multitude or common people in the church, therefore they submitted to those who were chosen and nominated to the judgment of the apostles, whether they be fit for that ministry according to the rule of the divine word. In other words, if all the apostles were like, hey, this guy doesn't get it, the church doesn't go, yeah, but he's funny. He's entertaining. We like his personality. We're taking him. No, so the the man who the church calls needs to be approved by the ministerium. And he's making that argument from the scriptures. I would argue that it's just also an argument from common sense. (laughs) that you kind of want the ministers of your church body to approve of a man you're going to call into the office. If they don't approve, do you think that that might be a red flag? Yeah, it might be a red flag. If you want him to be a pastor without going any, through any kind of accreditation or approval process, might that be a red flag? Yes, that might also be a red flag. Okay. So just once more from Kenrich, uh rewinding a tad here. But since the call belongs not only to the multitude or common people in the church, therefore they submitted those, uh, submitted those who were chosen and nominated to the judgment of the apostles, whether they be fit for that ministry according to the rule of the divine word. And so the election of the multitude was confirmed 
by the approval of the apostles. So this example then Chemnitz is giving is, hey, the congregation said we want this man. He's tested by the ministerium, in this case the apostles. They say he's fit. He's called and installed, as it were. All right, continuing with Chemnitz, next paragraph. And thus, finally, the ministries are committed to those nominated, elected, and called with the solemn prayer of the whole church and public testimony, namely the laying on of hands. Okay, the laying of hands uh, on of hands done by the ministerium, and this is the case in Acts 6, uh, but and referenced in the pastoral epistles, but this is done um, as a symbol showing the approval of the ministerium. Chemnitz continues, but since the multitude of the church is not always such that it can search out and propose for election those that are fit, the apostles themselves often nominated suitable persons and proposed them to the churches. Okay, Titus 1.5, 1 Timothy 1.3, and 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. So there are instances of this. It needs to meet with the church's approval. And that would be the great difference between us and kind of what the CEO pastors of large happy clappy churches are doing is they're not saying, hey, do you accept this man? They're just saying, hey, let me introduce you to your new pastor, mini-me. All right. Uh, Next, or excuse me, last paragraph on page 34. Thus, Paul sent Titus, Timothy, and Silvanus to churches, but the apostles did not thrust those persons on the churches without either invitation or consent, but nominated or presented them to the churches, which then approved and confirmed that nomination or election with their own free election, as Luke describes this custom with the word Chirotonia uh, in Acts 14.23. Okay, so that being a word of the approval of the election of the congregation. Okay, so you see Paul in the apostolic office not lording it over the churches of God saying, hey, this is your man. You can't, you can't take him or leave him. You have to take him. <laughs> All right, let's see if we can get this done here in the last three minutes. Last paragraph, top of 35, answering this question. Finally, after the church had grown into a large multitude, a presbytery was arranged and set up already at the very time of the apostles to handle this matter. 1 Timothy 4.14. In this, that is the presbytery, according to the accounts of Tertullian and Ambrose, those were folks um, that I think we met on the other page, some were chosen and appointed from all the orders or members of the church to take care of and administer these and similar church matters in the name and with the consent of the whole church. And thus the call remained that of the whole complete church, yet with proper and decent order observed. The church immediately following diligently followed these apostolic footsteps, and since the government also began to embrace the doctrine of the gospel, the whole matter of the election and call of ministers was ordinarily best distributed among the three chief orders of the church, namely clergy, the pious ruler, and the faithful people. Okay. 
So again, we have a hard time even imagining a world that looks like this. We can't. We haven't known one. But in their case, uh, well, in the case of the 16th century, you did have pious Christian, pious Lutheran rulers. And in earlier centuries of the church, you had the same, going back even to the earliest centuries, Tertullian, 2nd and 3rd century, Ambrose, 4th century, okay, where then these three chief orders are involved in the calling or placement of a pastor in a given locale, the church, the clergy, and the pious ruler. Um, Yeah, and yeah, so, sorry to use his specific language, the clergy, the pious ruler, and the faithful people. All right, he continues, many notable allow that to allow that to rearrange your furniture on the distinction between the two kingdoms by the way <laughs> cuz it's probably not the way you've got it set up in the living room of your mind he continues many notable old canons are quoted regarding this right and then he cites some of them and the old church history testifies that at times the bishops and clergy proposed persons to be called At times, a pious ruler nominated them. At times, the people requested them. But they then presented those proposed, nominated, and requested persons to the other orders or members of the church that the election might be approved and confirmed by their judgment and consent. Okay, Cyprian, I mentioned him earlier, 3rd century. He's usually dated 200 to 258. Um, And then Augustine, of course, uh, 4th, early 5th century theologian who needs no introduction. He's usually dated 354 to 430. So um, both of these are cited to this effect, that it is a corporate action of the church to call a man. And that corporate action involves um, bare minimum, the ministerium, but where there is a faithful ruler, also the faithful ruler. Continuing on with Chemnitz, from this there still remains the words nomination, request, presentation, consensus, confirmation, and conferring. From these words, rightly considered, it can be understood how and with what order the call of ministers of the church both was once regulated and ought to be properly administered in our time. All right, so our task then, since these are biblical principles, not merely biblical principles, but ecclesiastical principles as attested to by Tertullian, Ambrose, Cyprian, Augustine, I mean, these are major names, and then all the way up and through the Reformation attested to by Chemnitz and his peers, and certainly in keeping with the Book of Concord, our Lutheran confessions, then our goal in our own time is to see how it is that we might um, take these principles and apply them rightly. That, by the way, is the true value. I know it gets a bad rap, and sometimes I talk this way too. But that is the true value of our Constitution and bylaws, particularly our congregational bylaws, because they line out how this is to be done in good order. Now, we could all change those bylaws to something else if we wanted, but the whole point be that we all be agreed upon the right and proper order of calling a man, and then we execute that faithfully and fairly. Make sense? All right, that's it for today. The Lord be with you.